This morning our lesson is going to focus from Isaiah 53. I know Chuck kind of gave a, a little bit of that there this morning during the Lord's Supper. Uh, but we're looking at this as our final lesson, as we look at this as our final lesson from the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah 53 to me is, you know, we all say we have a favorite chapter or maybe a favorite scripture in the Bible. You know, sometimes it's, it kind of goes like this. You're reading through a, a, a section of scripture and you think, you know, that's one of my favorite verses. And you're reading a little bit longer and you say, well, that's one of my favorite verses. You find yourself saying that a lot. And so there's a lot of sections that are our favorites. And Isaiah 53 is one of mine. But it is also one that's very difficult for me to read and to study without getting a little bit emotional about it because Isaiah 53 is probably, at least in my mind, one of the most powerful chapters in all of the Word of God. Because we can look at it in different ways and say that it, Isaiah 53 is all about man, and it is in many ways. We can look at it and say it's all about Christ, and it is in many ways. And so we can learn so many things from this chapter. And it's just, as we just read there, that scripture reading, which really when you talk about Isaiah 53, when you're talking about the whole chapter, it's hard to determine what's going to be your scripture reading. But you see there already in those first few verses, the love of God being shown through Christ. And so this morning I want to show what we can learn from the sacrifices that have been made on our behalf. Now, as you look at Isaiah chapter 53, we're going to begin by looking at the first few verses, uh, which I have entitled here, The Grief and Suffering of the Servant. And we've really broken this down into uh, two or three main sections here this morning. But as you begin Isaiah 53, we find that it's not very long before you start seeing the things that are done on our behalf. As you look at Isaiah 53, beginning the first three verses here, which I've entitled, Acquainted with Grief. As you look at verse 1, he says here, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If you look up that word report, it's actually can be a reference to the idea of teaching. And the idea that who has believed our teaching, or even as Strong suggests, doctrine. And what it's about, as we find here in verse, he goes on to say here in verse 1, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Many times in the past, I would attribute that simply just to being to Christ. I don't think, that's, I don't think you can say that and be wrong. That's not a, a horrible idea. But I think more closely that arm of the Lord is really a reference to the Word of God. That that is the power of God. And even the Apostle Paul says it is a, the Word of God, you know, God's Word, the Gospel, the power of God unto salvation, Right? It is his word. And so we think about that phrase there at the end of verse 1. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I think about it this way. To whom has the arm of the Lord been accepted? People hear the word of God many times today. Sometimes by accident they turn on the television on a Sunday morning. They happen to hear a glimpse or a, a short little clip of someone preaching a, a lesson. And they hear just a tidbit of it. They may not accept it, but they have heard it. When we find here in verse 1, the idea here is not just someone who has heard it, but who has, who has believed it. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has, who has heard it and has accepted it as being actually from God? And something that they need to pay attention to. John asked this same question. If you look at John 12, verses 37 through 41, they heard his words, but they did not believe. They heard his words, but they did not believe. 
The arm of the Lord, again, is a reference to the power of God which is revealed in the message and put forth in the salvation which comes from believing it. We also find that in Isaiah 51, verse 5. By word and by power, God revealed himself and the salvation he would provide, specifically here, through Christ. Because this, we get, let's move on here, it goes past just the word of God, but it moves into who was, because we're talking about Isaiah's time, who was to come. Us today, we're looking back and seeing the fulfillment of prophecy, we see that these things have been fulfilled. But in Isaiah's time period, it was looking forward. He says in verse 2, For he shall grow before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. Now you think about this, how can we go from the word of God and then go to Christ in verse 2? Isn't that what happens in John chapter 1? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And the word we know is a reference to Christ. And we find here in verse 2, he says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, him being a reference to God. So he will grow up before God as a tender plant. He's going to grow up, no doubt, under the care of God, but he's also going to have to face a lot of difficulties. Some describe this dry ground he's going to come out of as the idea of, as a reference to the dry climate politically during his time. To me personally, I think that's a little bit stretching it. If you think about a plant that grows, that comes out of its seed and comes up out of that ground, what is it doing? Really, at the very beginning, it's struggling to come out, isn't it? The seed splits, the plant comes up and has to push up through that soil before it can come up and actually reach the sun, right? Well, did Christ have to endure various hardships? You know, even as an infant, he, you know, there's only so much an infant can comprehend, but when Christ was born, did he not, him and his earthly parents, have to flee immediately anyway? Yes, from a tyrant, he wanted to kill every child uh, in an attempt to just get to him, every male child in Asia too, just to try to get to him. He was going to grow up during a time of great difficulty. He goes on to say here in verse 2, He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. There was not a halo over Christ. Everyone knew to go to him, was there? It wasn't some outstanding, gorgeous man for people to say, I'll listen to whatever he says. That's not what Christ was. The Bible reveals he actually was a son of a, the son of a carpenter, which implies he knew how to work very hard. Because if you're, if you're a lazy carpenter, you're not going to be a very good one. But he, he, being a son of a carpenter, was going to know what it meant to work and to labor. And we find here, he says, And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Again, there was nothing outwardly that drew people to Christ. Because as we know, as we go through, the, through this and look into the Gospels, what brought people to Christ, what held their attention, is what he said and what he did. There's never any, you know, with the exception of the, the Mount of Transfiguration, there's very little said about Christ's outward appearance. It never describes what he looks like in detail, physically. You ever thought about why that is? Because it doesn't matter. It's not important. It doesn't matter what color hair he had, what color his eyes, what color his eyes were, how long his hair was, what his beard would have looked at, if he would have had a beard, whatever the case may be. It doesn't go into any detail about that because it does not matter. But us today, it does matter for a lot of people. It does matter. I encourage you sometime, and you won't like it, probably a lot of it, but go and look at some of the things that congregations ask of preachers. 
what they're looking for. And I'm not talking about things for them to teach. I'm talking about things that have nothing to do with teaching. And you'll begin to see that we have, a, a lot of times people have a lot of different criteria that isn't even biblical. And here, it's interesting here in verse 2, he is described as a person who has no outward appearance that would draw people to him. Verse 3 says here, he is despised and rejected by men. To despise is to hold little worth for someone or to hold, little, hold something in contempt could be to hold no value in it. So they looked at Christ and said, nah, he's not worth our time. He's not someone who we should esteem. He's just this man who we know, you know, he's the son of a, again, the son of a carpenter. He was a man who's going to, you know, be born uh, in a small town. And he's nothing too special to look at, right? He is despised and rejected of men, rejected by men. Think about that. The very first time as we talk about Christ here, mentioned how he is has nothing to draw people to him physically, and people already despise him and already rejecting him there in verse 3. He goes on to say here also there in verse 3, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And a man of sorrow means that he has to deal with many sorrows. A man of sorrows, referencing him being a, a physical man enduring sorrows and pain and concern about others. And then he says, acquainted with grief. What is that word acquainted with? What does that phrase, that phrase mean? It means you know someone, right? When we say, well, I'm acquaintances with that person, which means you know them, right? That tells us that Christ knew grief. He knew what it meant to experience grief. He knew what it meant to actually to suffer. He goes on to say here in verse 3, And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. People are actually were completely ignoring him. None unlike those today who want to try to help people see the truth of God's word. Sometimes they are indeed cast aside. I don't mean just preachers. I mean anyone. Talk Bible with someone sometime and see how that well that goes. Sometimes it goes great. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you'll learn firsthand what it means to be despised. Looking at verse 4 and following, we find here the, the suffering servant in verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 53. He says in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely means there is no doubt. There is no room for argument. He has borne our griefs. And that word borne literally means to lift. So you have the idea that he lifted up our griefs, which is a reference to sin in the context, and he's carrying them. You ever been with your child or grandchild and they're carrying something? We used to always say, don't bring anything into, for, instance, for example, we used to go to the zoo a lot. But don't bring anything with you. You don't want to carry the whole entire time, so I'm not carrying it for you. And what would happen? Halfway through, we'd end up carrying something we didn't want to carry, right? We'd take it off their shoulders, their little backpack, their little lunchbox, whatever it is, and we'd carry it for them. Well, here it is, he is lifting up and carrying something for them, and it's their griefs. And he says, and carried our sorrows. That's what he has done. Then look at the latter part of verse 4. You find the response. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We, we look at him and think God has afflicted this man. God has stricken this man. He was only smitten by God in the sense that God allowed him to suffer, though, didn't he? God allowed Christ to 
endure and to experience these things. Looking at verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Again, much of this uh, uh, Chuck was looking at a moment ago. He was wounded for our transgressions. Transgressions is a reference to breaking of law, which is sin. Transgression, the breaking of God's law and lawlessness is sin. The New Testament tells us that. So he was wounded for our sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Notice the, the things described in verse 5 are all physical, wounded, bruised, stripes. Did Christ suffer spiritually? We know the Bible does not support the idea that he went to torments. When people say, well, Christ went to Hades, that's actually a reference to the Hadean realm, which could be torments or paradise. But when Christ was on the cross, did he endure spiritual pain? What were the one that's, there's one phrase that Christ says specifically that bears out that he did endure spiritual pain. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Because the Bible tells us that the sky grew dark, which in my mind, I think in a lot of ways that describes him carrying the sin of all mankind and God no longer able to look upon him. And where God is not, sunshine's not going to be. That's my way of thinking about it. But he was forsaken. Why? Because verse 5 points out, as it does in verse 4, and many, many times over and over again, Christ was carrying the sins of mankind. Yes, he was wounded. Yes, he was bruised. Yes, he endured strife, but also he endured spiritual hardship. He would die physically, be in the grave physically, be in paradise physically, because that's where the, the deceased go, right? There's no way you can go to the other location. And then he will rise again, conquering death and conquering the final enemy for mankind. But again, physical pain is described in verse 5, but there's no doubt as we look throughout this and we look at the gospel accounts that Christ endured spiritual pain as well. Because how many times you hear things like, when, you think about phrases such as, Oh, you have little faith. You think the shortcomings of other men wore on Christ? Now, he never sinned. Don't misunderstand me. You think about one of the reasons why Christ prayed so often is because of those who are around him and their lack of faith. A man who walks on water to him and then begins to sink because he turns away and gets afraid. Peter, right? Those who came to him wanting to be healed and we find phrases repeatedly like, oh, you a little faith, or when will you understand, when he talks about the parables and things such as that. And so he has numerous chances or opportunities where things can wear on him, but he endures them all. Being worn out and being frustrated about things does not mean that you have given up or that you have even sinned. You got to remember Christ, the same one who went to the temple when they made the temple, he said, to a den, of a den of thieves in a place of merchandise, and he flips over the tables. He didn't sin. It was righteous anger, wasn't it? The Bible describes that as well. But he endured physically. I think it's fair to say he endured some spiritual difficulties as well without sin. Again, looking at verse 6. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. How many? In verse 6, he says all. We're not born saved, so we all have been apart from God at some point in our lives. All we like sheep have gone astray, he says. We have, we have turned everyone, which indicates every individual. You notice he goes from the word all to everyone, which indicates a personal responsibility. Everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Going back again to the all who have gone astray. All the sin of mankind upon Christ. Is there any reason why that doesn't begin to describe the pain of Christ? Describe the darkness coming upon the earth. Describe the words of God. Or the actions of words of Christ, rather, when he says, Why have you forsaken me? Because he bore the sins of all mankind. Now, if you begin to, we think about that, sometimes we, we kind of get into the easy idea of thinking, Well, we're just thinking about today. All mankind means all mankind for all time. From creation until Christ returns, he has bore the sins of every single individual. We think about our own sins, we think, man, that's a long list. But think about the world for all time. That's a whole lot of sin. And he bore it all. Looking now again at verse, uh, verse 5 here. He was wounded for our transgressions. I got back up too far. Verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why did he do that? Because there was no other way for man's sin to be solved. That problem had to have a remedy, and Christ was and is the remedy still today. Next we find in the latter part of this chapter, submission, victory, and reward. In verses 7 through 12. Beginning in verse 7, we find here the submission of the servant because Christ couldn't do what he did without submission to God and his will, to God's desire. You think about that for a second. What was one of the greatest desires that God had for Christ? To die on the cross. Not just to die, but to die on the cross. A instrument of torture until you die. That's how Christ was going to, to end his his physical life was going to come to an end for a moment, right? Looking at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That is an incredible thing to think about how Christ endured all these things, and especially during the time of his, of his trial, he said nothing until he was asked a, 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 that direct question by Pilate, right? He said nothing. He was silent. People laid charges against him. He said nothing. How hard is it to be silent? People are saying things about you. They have no truth in the slightest degree. And yet that's what Christ was doing. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. A lamb there is a reference to an innocent creature, right? So innocent you have to watch out for them because they can get hurt very easily because they're not they're very innocent, they're very harmless. 
That's why we refer to Christ, the Bible refers to Christ as the Lamb of God, right? He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before it shears is silent, meaning he's going through difficulty, slaughter, and shear being sheared, the idea there meaning he's going through and experiencing difficulties. So he opened not his mouth. Without saying a word, he endured those things. He was subjected to cruel treatment, yet when he willingly submitted for others, he, op he opened not his mouth. Looking at verse 8, it says, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who would declare his generation? So he was taken from prison and from judgment. He was led away to his death. We know he was, when he went before Pilate, he, he went before numerous leaders actually back and forth in the unjust trial they were having for him. Because when people want something done, sometimes it, it is completely and totally illegal, to put it mildly. And the trial of Christ was completely and totally illegal from beginning to end. But nonetheless, this is what has taken place. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? Who will declare the things that Christ has done? He was cut off from the land of the living. This indicates a violent death. Cut off from the land of the living. Was Christ's death violent? Well, it was, it was more than just his death that was violent, wasn't it? The scourging. One of the most understated but most horrible events that can happen to a person you just lay into them until you get tired and you take them out then you put them on the cross it wasn't uncommon for people sometimes to be scourged and then to allow them to be released some some come there say maybe that's what Pilate thought would happen that he could just scourge him they'd see him and say okay that's enough but that's not what happened he was scourged and then he was crucified Nails in his wrists, because the wrist was actually included as part of your hand in that time period, in that culture. That was included as part of your hand. So they put the nails through his wrists and through one nail through both of his feet. Now we can't begin to imagine what that pain would have been like. But if we're honest, that's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? Because his pain really began... At the time of his birth and time of his ministry on the earth, maybe not always physical, but always trying, always the, the mankind struggling to grasp things, and the list goes on and on and on. Mankind charging him with wrong and fairly, and again, the list goes on and on. Until we get to the scene where Christ is on the cross, and that's what we're referencing here in verse 7 and verse 8. That he is on the cross here. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who would declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Reference to his death. Again, his violent death. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. So he tells us what was happening. Then he gives us there at the end of that verse a reminder of why. For the transgressions of my people. A reference to those who are obedient to God. He was stricken. He endured these things for God's faithful followers. Why? Because Christ loves mankind. Because God loves mankind. You know, we, we read verses like John 3.16 so many times. You know, for God to love the world, we kind of 
read everything, yes, that's a whole lot of love, but Isaiah 53 really helps us understand what kind of love that is. That agape, that sacrificial love, that's the uh, Greek term there for agape, is that sacrificial love, which is you'll give anything for a person. And Christ did it. He did it for the whole entire world. God did it by allowing this to happen to his son. Again, for the whole entire world. Looking at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked. Now, the thought uh, that although he was intended to be buried with the wicked, as some say, either with his cross, according to Roman custom, or at a, at a disgraceful site, according to Jewish custom, because, again, he was an evil person, according to these people. Instead, he was buried with, in the tomb of a rich man. Remember him? Joseph of Arimathea, right? He was viewed as rich. The Bible tells us he was wealthy, and he, he gave him a tomb that no one had ever been laid in. Who now the rock where Christ would be laid... You know why it's important that no one else had ever been in there, that no one else was actually in there with Christ? Because some believe if, some, if a person touched the bones of a dead prophet, the, or a, a dead person could touch the bones of a dead prophet, that could come back to life, things of that nature. So when he's laid in a tomb by himself, no one there, well, that couldn't happen good. And so he's, in this, he's, he's put with the rich at his death. That's what the reference there is to, his tomb. Because he had done no violence. That is, he has, he has been innocent. That's why he was given such a place. Nor was any deceit in his mouth. Again, reminding us of the innocence of Christ there in verse 9. <clears throat> and then in verse 10 through verse 12, we have the victory and the reward as mentioned. In verse 10, he says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put, his, put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Think about that first phrase. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. You notice he describes Christ's death as a bruising. Do bruises last forever? No, bruises fade. Sometimes they take longer than what we would like, but they fade over time. And your skin no longer is tender and they, that they are, you are healed from that bruising. His death is described as a bruise because he wouldn't stay dead, would he? He wouldn't stay in the tomb. He would rise again. Thus his death is described as a bruise, as a temporary thing. He would die for all mankind. There was no doubt about it. When he came off the cross, before he ever came off the cross, actually, he was dead. The Bible tells us how they, they hit him in the side with a spear and blood and water came out. He didn't move because he was dead. They were going from cross to cross, going to break the legs of, those, of all of them so they could no longer lift themselves up so they could suffocate and die. But with Christ, he had already died. The Bible says he had given up the spear, he had given up the ghost. And they pierced his side and blood and water came out. What he do? He, he, he paid the price for sin. We find in verse 10, this action pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Why? For us. Because sin has an incredibly high price. And Christ paid that price for us. 
But as we're going to see next, that it still requires an action from us. It brought God joy to provide a sacrifice that would be sufficient for the redemption of man. Man's putting Christ to death was not by accident or by change in God's plan, but according to the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2, verse 23. God was willing to put uh, the Son through tremendous pain because it would allow mankind a way to be redeemed. Thus, the love of God in Christ is seen yet again here in verse 10. You have three results of this, of these actions being seen in the next, in these following phrases here. He has put his soul to grief. What happens as a result of this? He shall see his seed. Christ shall see his spiritual future, the new spiritual Israel, that is the church. He shall prolong his days and extend his years into the, into the infinite future. This is a reference to the resurrection. His death had been plainly announced. Back in verses 8 and 9, he was dead, but now is alive forever and holds the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 1, verse 17 and 18. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It pleased God to bruise the servant. The saints are given power to overcome Satan for the blood of him who made sacrifice, which is Christ. Revelation 12, verse 11. This is pleasure of Jehovah uh, that continues to prosper in his hand. And so three results there because of Christ's death, because of the actions that please the Lord. Verse 11 says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By my righteous servant, by, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Though the pain was great, he was satisfied, that is, God will be satisfied with the blessings and redemption that comes as a result. Those who have knowledge of Christ will be justified by their obedience to Him. As they come to knowledge of Him, the righteous servant will justify many by bearing their iniquities. It takes knowledge of God and obedience to God as a result of that knowledge in order for our sins to be Redeemed to be washed away in order for us to be redeemed and made, made justified in the sight of God. He shall bear their iniquities, the iniquities of all mankind. Christ died for all mankind, but all mankind does not get to take advantage of it because not all mankind submits and obeys God's word. Make no mistake, we're not talking about a limited atonement, as some would say. Some say that when Christ died, he died just for the saved. No, he died for all mankind. The only reason the saved are, are, are a different number is because some obey the gospel and some do not. He died for all mankind. If you want to take advantage of it, you have to do something. You think about those coupons you get in the mail. Just because it's there, it's there does that mean you automatically save 30%? No, you have to go out and you have to use it. And you have to use it within its guidelines, don't you? If you want to have salvation, you want to have redemption of your sins, you have to go out and do what is required of, of us. Obedience to God, obedience to the gospel, and a faithful following of Him until, our, until the end of our time. <coughs> Looking at verse 12. Therefore, that means as a result of what we've already said, He says, Therefore I will divide Him a portion with the great... That is God giving this portion to, to Christ, and He, now Christ, shall divide His spoil with the strong. 
So he will take from God and give to who? Those who are loyal to him. The strong being in reference to the faithful. Isn't it interesting that those who obey the gospel, those who are faithful, are referenced as the strong? Because it, it takes strength to remain faithful to God. It takes strength to remain loyal to God and his word. And then he goes on to say again, again, why? Because he poured out his soul unto death. That's why he's able to do this. He was numbered with the transgressors. That's why he's able to do this. He bore the sin of many. That's why he's able to do this. And made intercession for the transgressors. That's why he is able to do this. Because of all he has done for us. Look at verse 12. It's all about what he has done for us. He poured out his soul. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's all about what God did for us through Christ. You read those words. Is there any reason why that's probably one of the most powerful chapters in the entire Word of God? Because it's very clear what he's talking about. What God has done for us through Christ. And what we can do to take advantage of that, which is obedience to the gospel. Some lessons for us today. There are five stanzas, like Chuck was mentioning, of the servant song in chapter 53. You have the exaltation. You have the, which is there at the very beginning, right? Christ being exalted. You have the acquaintance with grief. You have his ill treatment, his sufferings. You have his total submission to Jehovah's will. And then you have his victory and reward. You think about those things. It's all about a servant. But not about just any servant. It's about God's servant. Christ. When you read this, when you read individuals talking about this as the servant song, that S is capitalized in the servant because it's a reference to Christ. The servant's song. Thus, he is only the servant of God. His exaltation, his acquaintance with grief, his ill treatment and sufferings, his total submission to Jehovah's will. He can't say it wasn't total submission. He gave everything. Everything. His victory and reward. You know, when you get to, to the last part there, uh, number five, his victory and reward, you can say it's also our victory and our reward, isn't it? Because Christ has victory. Because Christ was given a reward from God, we too gain victory and reward from God. For whom was Isaiah 53 written? First, Isaiah 53 is all about Christ. You could say it's all about us. I won't argue that point either. Because it depends how you want to look at it. It's not wrong. But I know one thing. It's definitely about a whole lot of love and a lot of sacrifice made on behalf of man. Second, it focuses primarily on what Christ has done for man and what he will do for man. We have seen what he would do in order to have man's kind's sins removed, to have those things omitted, to have those things wiped out. But also we find that after that, there is a reward that comes. As you go back there, look at verse 11. He will buy the spoil with the strong, which is a reference to eternal life. Part of the spoil of obeying God is we get to go to heaven. We get to be with God in Christ. 
As we close this morning, let's consider the blessings that come because of the sacrifices that has been made for man. And what should your response be? You know, when you read Isaiah 53, we have to ask ourselves that question. What should our response be to this? You read about what God has done for us through Christ. And we see what Christ was willing to do for us. What should our response be? You know, sometimes we hear people say things like, well, the church would just do this, or if y'all would just do that, or, you know, do something a little bit different. We don't need anything different. We don't need to change anything. We don't need to add anything or remove anything. God has already done everything that needs to be done. All that needs to change is the heart of man. We have to ask ourselves, are we willing to, are we willing to do what's necessary to have heaven as our home? There's no possible, logical way we could say God needs to do more. What else could he do? Friends, if we want to have heaven as our home, it is up to us.